0: lest we forget. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB.
1: A band of young men row steadily onward, peering into the darkness ahead. In a matter of minutes, they'll finally land on foreign shores. In the calm before the storm, they find themselves silent. Up ahead lies the certainty of blood, pain and death. The only question left is who death will spare and whose number is up. Anticipation pulses through their stiffened muscles. This is it. They were about to make history, but for all the wrong reasons. How is it that these young men in their prime find themselves on the other side of the globe, over 15,000 kilometres from home, and about to set foot on unfamiliar soil? What led thousands of young men here to this moment? Why were they fighting in the first place?
2: By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh how happy we we'll
1: The conflict had arisen as a clash of empires, as senior war historian Dr Damien Fenton of Massey University explains.
3: There were no great... Um, ideological causes at play. So, unlike the Second World War, where you've got, you know, obviously the Nazis and fascism and communism and democracy, and if you like, the Second World War is a war of ideologies. The First World War really just starts out as a, as a very traditional great power conflict between the European great powers.
2: By the sea. By the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh, how happy we'll be.
1: At the turn of the 20th century, the British Empire was the largest by far, ruling over a quarter of the planet, and stretching from Newfoundland to India, from Singapore to the Caribbean. This was the most powerful and most civilized empire the world had ever seen, an empire on which the sun never set. Germany was a rising great power, beginning to upset the balance of power in Europe, which Britain had vowed to maintain. Over the previous 30 years, rivalries over commercial interests in resource-rich Africa and other parts of the globe had settled into a thick web of alliances and agreements between the traditional powers of Great Britain, France, Russia, Germany and Austria-Hungary. With the rise of a newly united, militarised and aggressive German empire, the British began to get nervous. They didn't want to see any
3: one particular European power dominate the continent of Europe. And in 1914, it looked as if Germany was making a play to do just that.
1: The alliances were such that if it came to war, Germany would have no choice but to come to the aid of Austria-Hungary. After trouble in the Balkans, Germany anticipated war with Russia. Because of Russia's alliance with France, Germany decided to hit their Western neighbours first through undefended and neutral Belgium. Success on the Western Front would mean that Germany would not be dragged into a bloody and drawn-out conflict on two fronts simultaneously. Germany needed a quick victory. On August 3, 1914, Germany ploughed through Belgium in order to outflank French troops and capture Paris. This was supposed to force a surrender of the French within 42 days. What they didn't count on was Britain's vow to defend little Belgium, and so on August 4, 1914, Britain declared war on Germany. A key figure in the decision to go to war and later to send Anzac troops into Gallipoli was a young war hero by the name of Winston Churchill.
3: Winston Churchill, he's a very successful politician. He's young, um, he's ambitious, he's the first Lord of the Admiralty and he was a staunch defender of the Empire. He's a very powerful political figure at a relatively young age.
1: Known to the world later for his leadership of Britain as Prime Minister during the Second World War, In his early days, Churchill had served as a war correspondent in Cuba, India, Sudan and South Africa. During the Second Boer War, the armoured train he was on was ambushed and Churchill, with characteristic courage and dash, took charge and rallied British soldiers in defence. Overwhelmed by the Boers, Churchill landed in a prison camp in Pretoria. A dramatic escape earned him high profile in Britain, which he leveraged to enter politics. Appointed as First Lord of the Admiralty in 1911 at the age of 37, Churchill, as head of the Navy, was becoming increasingly wary of the risks Germany posed if they were to gain control of British ports.
3: I mean, he's a very complicated character, but as far as New Zealand in 1914 was concerned, Winston Churchill is all about protecting the empire and protecting the empire's interests. And when the Germans invade France, as far as he's concerned, that's it,
1: Britain has no choice but to go to war. And so on August 4th, 1914... The Empire Went to War.
0: It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB.
1: New Zealand was quick on the heels of the British decision, declaring war on Germany the day after Britain on August 5, 1914. Dr Felicity Barnes from the University of Auckland has researched the temperament of our society at the time.
2: By 1914, you've still got a large number of people who are actually British-born or are only first-generation New Zealanders, so a very strong sense of connection. Although New Zealand had become a dominion in 1907, that didn't really mean we were hugely independent. We were still used to our foreign affairs decisions being made offshore in Britain, and of course that's the case here when we go to war. And of course during this period, Britain is our number one export market and a huge source of all our imported cultural material, so books... Music, those kinds of things, come from Britain. So we're very closely connected with them.
1: In a cable from then Prime Minister William Massey to London, he stated, All we are and all we have is at the disposal of the British government. New Zealand would fight for king and empire. We had pledged our support. Now all that remained was to raise an army. As the territorials could not be deployed overseas... The government instituted a new branch of the army, the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. The
3: main body of the NZDF was an all-volunteer force. Uh, conscription wouldn't be brought in for another two years. So all the New Zealand soldiers who fought at Gallipoli were volunteers. There was a strict age limit um, between it had to be a minimum age of 20 and a maximum age of 40. That age limit would later be raised in 1916 to 45, but uh, the, the minimum age of 20 remained throughout the war. So, in theory, there shouldn't have been anyone under the age of 20 in the NZDF.
1: But of course we know that there were. In fact, men lied about their age at both ends of the official age bracket. So great was our willingness to join the fight.
3: The
2: commitment of soldiers is probably the greatest demonstration of New Zealand's commitment to this British link. They want to fight for Britain and for empire. They see it as important, and I think it's a shame that some of our discussions about particularly Gallipoli, ANZAC, and World War One, tend to downplay that, because that's the actual experience of the soldiers.
3: For some, it was simple and pure patriotism. It was actually for king and country. For some, it was because their mates were going. They didn't want to be left out. Others really did see it as a, as a chance for adventure, a chance to get away from New Zealand, to get overseas. There's any number of motivations that saw these men put their hand up to volunteer and go and fight.
4: Diary of Private A.J. Newton 8th Southland Company Otago Infantry Battalion New Zealand Expeditionary Force Printable events since joining Wednesday, August 19, 1914 Left Makatoa and went into Invercargill to the garrison hall where I was signed on and medically examined and passed as fit fitted out with uniform and rifle and equipment Thursday, August 20, left Invercargill by Second Express for Dunedin, arriving there at 7pm. Here we were shown our tents, we got our field kits and blankets, and after having a look around the camp, went to bed and slept soundly, till awakened by the buglers sounding reveille at 5.30am. On Monday 21st, the whole of the troops in camp were taken for a march through Dunedin, destined to be our last, but we didn't know it then. At different points on the route, school children with flags waving and bands playing gave us a great reception, the cheering being deafening. At the Oval, the first lot of children were stationed, and as we neared the main street, the crowd became thick and thicker till there was bare room for us to get through, marching four abreast. That night, we were told to pack our kits as we'll be leaving the next day. The raising of the New
1: Zealand Expeditionary Force was a significant logistical challenge carried out largely by two men, Defence Minister James Allen and the British Commandant of the New Zealand Forces, Major General Alexander Godley.
3: Allen is an outstanding Defence Minister and Godley is an absolutely brilliant man when it comes to organisation and administration and training and the like. And between them, they put into motion plans, which, I mean, obviously there'd been some pre-war planning and they heavily relied upon the existing infrastructure that had been built up to support the territorials throughout the country. And they also relied heavily upon the fact that that obviously many men who were serving in the territorials would likely put themselves forward. And in fact, Godley made a point of trying to make sure as many of the officer positions in the NZDF as possible were filled by territorial officers who put themselves forward. And uh, the main body of the NZDF, uh, the first eight and a half thousand, was raised. Uh, the doors opened the first week of August, and by mid-October that main body was on the troop ships and was sailing out of Wellington Harbour and on its way to the Middle East.
1: Two months after the declaration of war, 8,500 volunteers had been mobilised and sailed under the command of Godley, first to Australia to join up with the Australian Imperial Force and then in convoy toward Europe as the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps.
0: Commemorating 100 years of the Anzac spirit. With Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB.
1: At the time of the First World War, the Ottoman Empire encompassed a large region in the Middle East, including modern-day Turkey, Israel, Jordan, Iraq and Syria.
3: The Ottoman Empire wasn't unknown to New Zealand, as I say. I mean, it's one of the European great powers, had been for 500 years. If you read the papers here in New Zealand, you'd be more than aware of, of, if you like, the international politics, the international diplomacy that involved the Ottoman Empire and, and various concerns, particularly in the Balkans. At, at one level, um, um, there would have been a number of New Zealanders who would have been reasonably well informed about the Ottoman Empire and, and, and knew of it. For your average person, probably not beyond the anecdotal stories about the Turks and this is actually a, a, has been a problem for us before and, and since, in that we refer to the people we were fighting at Gallipoli as the Turks. It was actually a European thing to use Turks as a shorthand for the Ottomans. But it's actually misleading because the Ottoman Empire was a multinational empire and it was dominated by the Turks. The Turks were definitely in charge. Uh, they ran the joint and they definitely dominated the army. Most of the officers were Turks, but there were some 20 million people living in the Ottoman Empire in 1914 and only about half of them were Turks. The rest, the bulk were Arabs, uh, most were Muslim, but even beyond then, you also had uh, large minorities of Christians, of uh, Greek Orthodox, Armenian, Assyrian, uh, you had Jews. It's a complicated multinational empire, and in fact, on the first day of the landing, on the 25th of April, the Ottoman 19th Division, which basically counterattacked and pushed our guys right back onto the beach, almost pushed them into the sea, it had three regiments. One was a Turkish regiment, but the other two were Arab so in that sense, we were profoundly ignorant of the complexities of the Ottoman Empire. And that's largely carried over through to today, actually. And it's, 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 it's a problem because it leads to confusion between, say, the modern Republic of Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, and the two are actually very different creatures.
1: On August 10, 1914, just six days after Britain had declared war, two German vessels in the Mediterranean Sea, the Goeben and Breslau, encountered the Royal Navy. Taking evasive measures, they sought refuge in the Ottoman Empire by sailing through the Dardanelles, a narrow strait between the Asian coast and the Gallipoli Peninsula. The Ottomans had still not entered the war, in spite of the efforts of a man named Enver Pasha,
3: Enver Pasha is one of the leading lights of a group of young Turkish officers who saw themselves as reformists, as men who would modernise the Ottoman Empire, bring it into the, into the 20th century. And they effectively mounted an effective coup and, and took over the government, which is actually where you get the phrase, the young Turks, which has sort of entered our political lexicon. And so Enver is, is one of these guys. In 1914, he's the minister for war. As soon as Russia went to war with Germany, Enver saw this as an opportunity for the Ottoman Empire to also go to war against Russia and basically reclaim territories that have been lost to Russia over the previous hundred years in a succession of wars where the Ottoman Empire had come off second best to Russia. And the fact that the Germans had also been the prime military advisors in an ongoing modernization project for the Ottoman army and navy for the previous 30 years also helped push Enver towards Germany and, and the central powers. But he, he really had no particular beef with the British, it didn't have a particular problem with the French for that matter either. And in fact, it's almost incredible to look back now and look at the ease with which he apparently dismisses the problems that the British or the French could cause him and the Ottoman Empire if he does go to war.
1: As the debate raged in the Ottoman Parliament with the Turkish Prime Minister adamant that they remain neutral, Enver Pasha began to take matters into his own hands.
3: The Ottoman Empire had declared that the Dardanelles were basically off-limits, closed to any of the warships of the warring nations. Yet Enver allowed the Gobin and the Breslau into the Dardanelles and allowed them to take shelter at Constantinople, one day Istanbul, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this was a violation of their supposed neutrality, but it's also a huge slap in the face to the British. The Germans, though, they're very keen to try and get the Ottoman Empire into the war. So they are also doing everything they can to encourage and support Enver and his allies in the government. And in an extraordinary stroke of diplomacy, the Germans then turn around and offer the Gobin and the Breslau to the Ottoman navy. And actually, basically, they reflag them.
1: And these two ships are now the
3: flagships of the Ottoman Navy.
1: Britain furiously decried the dodgy deal and gave orders to set up a blockade outside the Dardanelles to attack the ships, regardless of the flag they flew.
3: The British didn't help themselves. And again, Winston Churchill is key to this. When the war began, British shipyards were in the process of handing over two brand-new battleships that the Ottoman Empire had contracted them to build for the Ottoman Navy, now, at the outbreak of war, Winston Churchill ordered that these two ships basically be confiscated and taken over by the Royal Navy. Now, this was seen by the Ottoman government as a huge insult and absolutely outrageous. And it actually had a, had a very strong effect on public opinion in the Ottoman Empire because these two warships had actually been paid for by public subscription. So there'd been drives to raise money for these ships. And, and so many Ottoman subjects actually felt they had a stake in these warships. And here's the perfidious British effectively stealing their warships, whereas at the same time, the Germans turn around and actually hand them two warships. And it seems as if Enver had actually lost patience because during these these months, he had obviously been slowly winning the argument to bring the Ottoman Empire into the war on the side of the central powers. And the prime minister was obviously losing ground, but clearly it wasn't going fast enough for Enver. And so he orders this, if you like, this preemptive strike, which effectively settles the matter once and for all. They actually launch a a surprise attack on the Russian Navy and and Russian shipping in the Black Sea. Apparently nobody else in the government was consulted, including the Minister of the Navy. So he takes basically arbitrary action. And actually from this point on, even though he still only is officially the Minister of, of the Army, he becomes the de facto wartime leader of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Our Anzac boys in the Expeditionary Force were still at sea when they learned of the Ottoman entrance into the war. And rumours began to circulate that they would not be heading to England as previously understood.
2: There was a sense that it was really about Britain and Germany, that they identified very closely. And we can see that in the disappointment when the first um, expeditionary force gets taken to Egypt and not to Britain. This is the sideshow. They really want to be where the fighting's at, so they want to be in the Western Front.
1: After six weeks at sea, the men finally disembarked in Egypt, a protectorate of the British Empire and set about completing their training. Confused and frustrated, these soldiers who left Te Awamutu, Kaikoura and Mosgiel, expecting to fight Germans on the Western Front, now found themselves in the desert outside Cairo, training to take on the Turks.
0: We will remember them. It's the Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Talk ZB. <laughs>
1: For Māori, World War I came on the cusp of change in New Zealand society, according to war historian Dr Monty Sutar of Massey University.
5: You had members of parliament who spoke both languages, were very capable, Apirana Ngata, Māori Paul Mare, Peter Buck, all members of the Young Māori Party who had come through Teotu College. They believed that in order for the status of Māori to change in this country, then we needed as, as citizens of the country to do our bit to be seen to be equal to, to Pākehās in this country. When the war came around, uh, they felt that um, we needed to front up and uh, we needed to do, as pake were doing, volunteering for, for the war. And that's what they promoted. And uh, a lot of Māori leaders at the time uh, agreed. And so they uh, sent telegrams in practically the day after the announcement of war, offering tribal commitments uh, in, in the way of the young men. From the outset, Māori were allowed to enlist as individuals. The issue was with a completely ethnic unit uh, within the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. That was the issue. And initially, the government turned down the office because it was still deemed uh, a white man's war and that um, dark races shouldn't be involved in wars between uh, white races. Although that changed after about a month when it was learnt that Indian and Algerian troops were uh, off to the seat of war and uh, the imperial government um, agreed that uh, there could be a, a Maori unit sent overseas and that's how they came about in answer to a request by the Māori leaders of the time.
1: But not all tribes were of the view that they should commit troops to this war.
5: There's big differences between some
2: Māori who choose to participate and participate eagerly, often along sort of Queenite or what they call Kupapa lines, so people who might have fought for various reasons on the side of the government originally in the New Zealand wars. Those sort of fault lines stay in place when it comes
5: to participation in World War I. Those tribes who had suffered the heaviest in terms of confiscation in the 1860s were the ones who were most reluctant to give their lives for a king who uh, they held responsible for the loss of their lands and and their treatment. So I'm talking about uh, Waikato, Taranaki, maybe a small part of uh, Tūhoe, suffered heavy confiscations and their men were noticeably not rushing to the recruitment offices to to volunteer for this war.
1: In spite of these differing views, 500 young men did volunteer, forming the Native Contingent, which sailed from Wellington in February of 1915. Upon completion of their training in Egypt, they were to be assigned the menial tasks of garrison duty as they weren't trusted to carry weapons into battle alongside their Pākehā counterparts. Defence Minister James Allen appealed in a letter to the head of the NZEF, Major General Alexander Godley, for the native contingent to fight, saying, Although they're a coloured race, I think it would be apparent on their arrival that they are different to the ordinary coloured race.
5: When they arrived at camp in Avondale, 500 of them, for the first time, from all these tribes that had been brought together to live together. It was an impressive sight, and everybody spoke of you know the builds these guys had, uh, the fact that they spoke very good English. It, it made an impression on everybody, and of course they uh, were rolled out from the time they were brought into camp to do haka and, and sing, and uh, they were the cultural component, I guess, of the expeditionary force. And when they stripped down to the waist, you know, these guys were lean, uh, muscular, uh, and everybody thought, what a waste, that these guys were only going over to do garrison duty. Uh, and so not only was the call coming from Māori that they should be put into the front line, but after a while, even uh, those who saw them and their high command were of the view that they should be put into action uh, alongside Parkin New Zealanders.
1: Major General Godley, however, wasn't swayed. And although impressed, he stuck to his decision to keep the native contingent behind the lines, reinforcing the British garrison on the island of Malta. It would take months of bloody stalemate on the Gallipoli Peninsula to change his mind.
0: Honouring those who made the ultimate sacrifice with Leighton Smith on Newstalk ZB. Are
6: we down a <laughs> Then let your ring, and all together sing, uh, no! Winston I Churchill
1: still a young man name. had already ascended to the role of first Lord of the Admiralty as head of the Royal Navy, it was Churchill who was ultimately responsible for the plan given to our Anzac soldiers Churchill's plans centered on the Dardanelles a narrow stretch of water on the Mediterranean some 60 kilometres in length between the Asian coast of modern-day Turkey and the Gallipoli Peninsula. The width of the strait ranged from six kilometres down to just over a kilometre at its narrowest point.
3: The idea behind the Gallipoli campaign is Winston Churchill's, and he comes up with what he sees as this genius stroke to knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war with a single decisive blow. And his idea is to cobble together a fleet of second-rate warships that aren't up to scratch for service in the North Sea against the Germans, to send the second-rate fleet, along with uh, ships from the French fleet in the Mediterranean, to force a passage through the Dardanelles Straits, through the Sea of Marmara, and then to take up a position offshore from the capital, Constantinople. And at that point, he assumes that the Ottoman government would then be forced to surrender, presumably under the threat of bombardment, that if they don't surrender, that this fleet will flatten Constantinople. So that's that's the grand idea. That's the grand scheme, that this will be a quick and easy victory, as opposed to what was already becoming apparent on the Western Front uh, the trench warfare, the stalemate, uh, the high casualties and and the apparent improbability of getting any sort of decisive decision on the Western Front against the Germans any time soon.
1: The naval operations were effectively the first phase of what became the Gallipoli campaign. The Anglo-French fleet that Churchill had envisaged was cobbled together and deployed. However, the Ottoman coastal defences turned out to be significantly stronger than Churchill had anticipated.
3: The biggest problem is the fact that the Ottomans have laid minefields, underwater minefields, across the strait at its narrowest point, the narrows. And to clear those minefields, you have to send in minesweepers. Unfortunately, you can't do that because there are also coastal artillery effectively covering the minefields. So if you send in the minesweepers, they're going to get sunk by the coastal batteries. But the culmination of the naval campaign is a disastrous all-out attack on the 18th of March. Effectively, Churchill is losing patience, and instead of, of messing around, trying to get these minesweepers in and, and trying to sort of take out, you know, one minefield at a time, he effectively pressures the naval commander in the Dardanelles to make an all-out attack. And he does. It's an all nothing charge. They actually tried, basically, they just try to crash through these minefields. And they lose three warships, two British and one French, and over a thousand sailors die. And so that's the end of the, of the naval campaign. At which point Churchill turns around, and he's not about to give up, though, because he still feels that the overall strategy, this idea that if you can somehow get a fleet through to Constantinople, the Ottomans will surrender, he still thinks that's a goer that that can work. So now he goes for plan B, and plan B is, well, all right, if the Navy can't get past these coastal defences, how about we land a ground force on the peninsula to knock out those coastal defences, and that will allow the Navy through.
1: Unfortunately for the Anzac soldiers, the action in the Dardanelles had put the Ottoman Empire on high alert as they anticipated a landing. In the weeks of calm after the failure of the naval attack... Ottoman troops on the peninsula were reinforced and highly prepared to defend their land against Churchill's plan B.
3: The Gallipoli campaign in the end was an absolute disaster for Winston Churchill in terms of his own prospects. The scandal around it contributed to the fall of the Asquith government, uh, led to the, the formation of the coalition under Lord George. And the effect of that was to see Churchill lose his position. In fact, he had no position for a while there and actually ended up taking himself off to France and and joining an infantry battalion on France for most of of 1916 until he could uh, come back and and, and try and resurrect his career. Uh, So it was a very black mark against uh, Churchill. And, of course, in Australia and New Zealand... It was also held against them and not forgotten for pretty much all of the interwar period.
0: Commemorating 100 years since the Gallipoli campaign with Leighton Smith on News Talk ZB.
6: Cairo, Egypt. Africa, 29th of March, 1950. Dear Iris, I was very pleasantly surprised to get a letter from you. You know, I still think of you as a little schoolgirl. Surely I haven't a niece who will soon be putting her hair up. By crumbs, don't get married before I get back. Now to get serious. It is funny that each one thinks that someone else is writing and doesn't worry, or if they do write... They always suppose that the others are telling all the news and it is useless for them to write the same news. The result is that no one writes. If they only saw what excitement there was in camp with the arrival of each mail and how the one with the biggest bundle of letters lords it over all the others, then I'm sure I'd get a big pile, even if some were practically empty envelopes. The climate was lovely when we first came here, but now it is practically unbearable. The mirages in the desert are wonderful, You are certain that there is a big lake not far away and don't like to have to believe that it is a mirage. Then if troops are any distance away, they look like wriggly jellyfish. I think we ought to be in it soon. And with eight months training, we will especially slather the Germans right up. We'll frighten the Turks away without us firing a shot. Then you see, under General Sir Ian Hamilton, we will attack them on an unguarded point from the fallen Dardanelles. Sometimes, though, we laugh when we see the NZ papers telling of our deeds at the canal, etc., when we haven't done a thing and are all heartily sick of camp. We came to help end the war, not fill in time while others do the fighting. Well, old girl, I could ride on for a month. Give my love to all my Buckland and Pukakoi friends. I'll ring off.
1: Best love to you all, from your loving Uncle Bill. In the dusty heat of the desert outside Cairo, the New Zealand Expeditionary Force underwent strenuous physical preparations for battle. The training grounds were intentionally set three or four miles from the camp to ensure a certain amount of marching each day, always with full packs. The physical training continued until early April, with the sun beating down on them daily from a cloudless Egyptian sky, whilst the commanding officers hastily drew up plans for a ground assault on the Gallipoli Peninsula.
3: With the failure of the naval attack, Churchill, with the support of the rest of the, of the War Council, decide that they will try an invasion of the peninsula. And General Syrian Hamilton is appointed to, to lead this ground force, which is called the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. And he is effectively given just six weeks to basically collect all of his forces and plan and organise and execute an invasion, which is just insane. If you think of, say, the D-Day landings in World War II and the fact that it was three years of planning and preparation before those landings were executed... The fact that the plan for the Gallipoli landings was done in less than six weeks, you know, this was trouble from the outset.
1: It's been said that the Gallipoli campaign's failure could be blamed on poor intelligence and an underestimation of the number of Ottoman troops on the peninsula. In retrospect, this appears to be a myth. General Hamilton's staff did, in fact, have access to up-to-date maps, and their intelligence of the enemy's troop strength wasn't far off.
3: They didn't go in blind. The problem was that Even though they had a reasonable idea of of the details, if you like, their overall estimation of the Ottoman army and its willingness to fight and its ability to fight was low. They really didn't think the Ottomans would put up much of a fight. And there was a good reason for that, because the Ottoman army had suffered a a humiliating defeat in the first Balkan war just two years earlier, when this army, the Ottoman army, the army of a great power, had been soundly defeated by a ragtag coalition of Balkan states, the Balkan League, Serbia, Greece, Montenegro and Bulgaria. So based on that performance, I actually have some sympathy for the British planners and commanders because the evidence before them was that the Ottomans weren't actually much chopped when it came to, to being able to fight and win in a modern war. But that meant that they underestimated the ability of the Ottomans to defend and hold their ground. So even though they had the numbers before them, they didn't really give those numbers the due attention and respect they should have.
1: After months of training, the Anzac troops began to get restless. They'd signed up to fight. And even though fighting Turks had seemed like a sideshow to the real war on the Western Front, they were now keen to get stuck
4: into the action wherever required. To whom it may concern, on the event of my death, would the finder of this book please forward same to Mr E. W. Newton. Makotoa, Southland, New Zealand. Saturday, 10th of April, 1915. Receive orders to leave for Dardanelles. We left Zetoun Station at 1am and arrived at Alexandria at 7am and embarked on the SS Annaberg. Friday 16. Arrive at Port Mudros in Lemnos Island, which is about 25 miles from the Dardanelles. Lying in the harbour were many French and English battleships, cruisers, destroyers and submarines. As we steamed in, the band played the Marseillaise as we passed the French warships and they cheered us lustily. We passed quite close to the Queen Elizabeth and had a good view of her big guns. On shore were the camps of the Australians who had left Egypt before us. There are two or three villages around the harbour and the sight of green fields after the sandy desert of Egypt was very pleasing. Sunday, April 25. Leave Lemnos Island for Gallipoli Peninsula. This
0: Anzac Centenary Tribute has been made with help from New Zealand On Air.
1: On the morning of April 25, 1915, after months of restlessness, feeling as if the entire war would pass them by, the Anzacs were finally about to join the fight on the shores of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Having conducted a few practice landings in preparation while stationed on the Greek island of Lemnos, this time aboard the small wooden boats, the air is thick with excitement and foreboding. A band of young men rose steadily onward. Peering into the darkness ahead. In a matter of minutes, they'll finally land on foreign shores. In the calm before the storm, they find themselves silent. Up ahead lies the certainty of blood, pain, and death. The only question left is who death will spare and whose number is up. Anticipation pulses through their stiffened muscles. This is it. They were about to make history but for all the wrong reasons.
0: Thursday at 11am for the second instalment of this four-part Anzac Centenary Tribute with Leighton Smith on Talk ZB.